Warning, 1982 project contains explicit language. Sorry, not sorry. I love a good I love a good Cinderella story. I love a good boxing movie. Yeah. And as a kid I loved this movie. This oh, this movie God, yeah. This I think again, I had the poster. That slicked up Stallone. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing like the vein on his bicep and thinking, I want that. Hello and welcome to the 1982 Project. This is the Macho Grande edition. My name is Michael Schantz. And I'm Matt Aldrich. And this is the show that goes toe-to-toe with the movies of 1982. We ain't partners. We ain't brothers and we ain't friends. What are you people? On dope? I got nowhere else to go! I'm afraid! Alright? He likes Wonder Whip. Let's get let's blow it up right away. The black man. Texas has a whorehouse in it. Now that penis had a mom. I'd recognize that penis anywhere. Fuck you two! You go clean off my door. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Enough talk! And here we are, Matt. We're talking what we're lovingly calling the Macho Grande episode. We are here talking about the films, the ma- the most macho films of 1982. Right. We, are ta- we are talking about Rocky Three. We're talking about First Blood. We're talking about Death Wish Two, Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan, and Conan the Barbarian. First, let's just pause and <laughs> and look at that list and go, "Holy shit! All those came out in one year." In one, yeah. In one right. year. You have, you have. A, That's the, incredible. The character of Rocky Balboa. You have the first time we see the character of John Rambo. You have the first John time. John Rambo, right. First time we see Conan the Barbarian. You have Ricardo Montalban as Khan in one of the most sort of iconic uh, roles in pop culture. Performances in pop yeah. culture, right. I mean, really, just such, such a, an amazing performance that, that stands the test of time. And then you have. You know, on sort of the darker side of the coin, you have the character of Paul Kersey from the Death Wish series. Who, Coming back with more bloodlust. Yeah, and, and Charles Bronson. I think to me, like, when I say Paul Kersey, like, nobody knows who I'm talking about. But when I say, right. Char- when I yeah. say Charles Bronson, they're like, oh, the, the, the guy, Everybody the knows, Death Wish right. guy, right? Yeah, it's like that. Like, yeah, so totally. So these, these are the men. These are the men who were going to teach us how to be men. Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> These are the guys. It was a, all right. right. All right, class. We have a few guest speakers for you today. <laughs> and then enters Charles Bronson with his Beretta <laughs> pistol. This uh, could take uh, 15 in the clip and one up the pipe and uh, you load it like this. And <laughs> I mean, you have th- – these are all warriors and these are all men who are out for vengeance. Every one of these characters, somewhere or another, is, is trying to avenge something. He's just another fighter. No, he ain't just another fighter. This guy is a wrecking machine, and he's hungry. 
Hell, you ain't been hungry since you won that belt. Oh, what are you talking about? I've had ten title defenses. That was easy. What do you mean easy? They was handpicked. Setups? Yeah, they were setups. They was good fighters, but they wasn't killers like this guy. He'll knock you into tomorrow, Rock. This is a summertime movie. This movie came out in late May. Oh, I remember when it came out. Oh, yeah. This movie came out. It's, it's so, so we're going to get into the Wayback Machine. Um, it, is, yeah. it, is, it is late May. It is May 28th. And Rocky has come out. Now, Conan the Barbarian came out two weeks prior. And the following week, Wrath of Khan comes out. So this is a oh, we are Jesus in Christ. this is a month of <laughs> macho right now. We are in right. 30 macho days in 1982 and right in the middle of that is Rocky 3 and you know it Oh man, I remember this movie coming out. And I probably saw this movie 3 4 5 times in the theater. Oh really? Yeah. Who who were you going with? Your 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 brothers, your friends? Yeah, both. Yeah. Any probably all of the above. So I mean, the, I probably saw it with my family first, and and yeah, then you start talking about it at school, and well, let's you know, because we, you know, the the movie theater was within walking distance. Walk down one road, hop a fence, and and you're at Man Theaters in Rancho Bernardo. <laughs> Shout out, <laughs> a a place I later worked, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So this is in the in the pantheon of Rocky movies. Where are we? Where 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 are we now with Rocky Three story wise? We are in the success portion of Rocky's story, mm-hmm. and the excess that comes with that. Right? This movie looks a lot different than the first two movies. The first two movies are about a guy down and out on his luck, mm-hmm. and he gets this remarkable opportunity, and he does something nobody thought he would do and and that gives him the the opportunity to try again and he wins. But those movies have a gritty look to them, right? They Yeah, they're and they're Cinderella stories. And they're Cinderella stories, exactly. But now Cinderella is married to the not, prince. <laughs> right, exactly. Cinderella now lives in the castle and they still have to make him an underdog in this movie, which yeah. is which is what is uh, like the, the the sort of story gymnastics that they have to go through to make him an underdog again. To it, make him an underdog again is uh, one which of the is, things that, that stood out to me on this viewing. I was like, wow, uh-huh. they're, they're really they're they're devoting at least twenty five minutes of screen time to to get to, to that the, to get me to believe that he's the underdog, that the world champion right. is the actually the underdog. But what's interesting is within the world of sports, that's a thing. We're in the time of Larry Holmes being the heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. I think I got that right. But but really what it is, is it's the golden age of middleweights. This is when I was watching Marvelous Marvin Hagler, who mm-hmm. recently just died. Thomas Her- Tommy Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Robert Duran. Those four guys. And you have the moments where... Roberto Duran beat Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm-hmm. Worked his whole life for that moment. Beat him. The next fight that they had against each other was the No Mas fight. Sugar Ray in, was was playing with him in a way, you know, he was so cagey with him. He would not let Roberto Duran fight the fight he wanted to fight. So famously, he kind of quit the fight. He just quit. He said No Mas. And Sugar Ray got his title back. 
So you can draw an equivalency between, say, that fight and Rocky Balboa losing a fight and coming back. You felt when watching this that um, that the plot it didn't uh, it didn't break. Like you were like, yeah, yeah, I could see a boxer going through following that exact arc. Narratively, it's it's a tough thing to do to make him the underdog again, but in reality. You know, champions lose and they do come back and try to win again. So, you know, I, I love a good I love a good Cinderella story. I love a good boxing movie. Yeah. And as a kid, I loved this movie. This oh, this movie. God, yeah. This, I think again, I had the poster that slicked up Stallone. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing like the vein on his bicep and thinking, I want that. In these in these macho movies, we have. Uh, some body types that come up um, where we have say. Rocky Balboa, Conan the Barbarian, and Khan, who... who Well, even just in this movie, between him, Mr. T, Clubber right. Lang, and Thunderlips. And Thunderlips, who is... Uh, so Hulk, when you're talking about malehood... Yeah. Yeah, Thunderlips is referred to as the Mountain of Molten Lust. Oh, Jesus Christ. I must have... I, I, I blocked that out. I went into a fugue state during that whole sequence. Um yeah, I have no memory. It's just like the movie started and then I woke up and it was over. Right. Think of just about, think, let's just think about the bodies. <laughs> We've got the, 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 the wide debut of Arnold Schwarzenegger, a, a, a person that the vast majority of Americans had never seen before. You had a new sculpted, slimmed up Rocky Balboa. And then you had the bare-chested Ricardo Montalban. You know, I I, yeah, I, right. I I look at I look at the difference between the Star Wars action figures that I had as a little kid that came out of like the late seventies and early eighties, and the men like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker had like zero physique. They they were right. They were rectangles. It's a straight line from <laughs> the shoulders to line. the heels. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But then, <laughs> but then when you look at the when you if you pick up um, action figures from the early two thousands after Phantom Menace came out and they reissued. Right. They reissued Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, and suddenly they're just like they're like CrossFit cut. Yeah. They just like they have the V. They've got yeah. the wide uh, lats. I mean, they're just like they are completely yoked. In watching this again, for me, I have to say my response to this movie was so um, negative in re in the rewatch. Uh huh. Because partially because you know I think with the twenty twenty one eyes. And it's sort of being sort of unplugged for the matrix of it all. We can see sort of the racist, not just overtones, but undertones, middle tones. I mean, it's there. There, race is race is addressed in this movie. Yeah, it's see, uh, it's talked you know. about, and 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 I think they try to put forward a a a worldview where races can sort of get along and, and uh, uh, you know, or, or I, I should I say. I think this movie does take the point of view of the futility of racism, but that's for another. It's for another t- conversation. But I, th- I think besides, so I had one reaction that was revolved around the, around race and the portrayal of race um, and yeah. sort of how it figures into the story. But then I had this other reaction of just the, again, just the violence and the and the kind of manhood that was being celebrated here, the things I didn't like. This is kind of speaking more to race too. But there there are several times in this movie where choices are made that I don't understand. In which before 
uh, I think the first big fight between Clubber Lang and Rocky, all the reporters are in his locker room asking him questions. And you hear one reporter say, come on, Clubber, dance for us. Ugh. And that's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. And then in the second fight, he's walking towards the ring and a man jumps out and says, why don't you go back where you came from? And then Clubber Lang pushes him back into the audience. I don't, I don't, I don't think the movie is endorsing that. I think, but, but you know, but you also, you, it, but it's completely it, unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. And the movie is like trying to have, have it both ways at times. Um, yeah. On, on that sort of issue. I, I think though, that what we have here and we'll see this in the other films that we talk about, what we have here essentially is a, is a, as a vengeance picture, right? At least, yes. at least the third act. Um, is is a vengeance picture in the, in the realm of sport, and as you say, in boxing, like yeah, there's rematches, there's grudge matches. Right, like it's, it's built into the fabric of the sport, and so I don't think yes. that this movie is wrong in what it's in what it's uh, talking Correct. about. But what we have here, part of part of the the character of Rocky that they're putting out um, is one who is driven by that kind of. Um, need to settle the score. And the thing that seems to be, you know, the, the, the scene that, that seems to be the fulcrum of the movie for me is the scene on the beach with Adrian. Why don't you tell me the truth? What are you putting me through, Adrian? You want to know the truth? The truth is I don't want to lose what I got. In the beginning, I didn't care about what happened to me. I go in a ring, I get busted up. I didn't care. But now there's you, there's a kid. I don't want to lose what I got. Why do we have that can't be replaced? What? A house. We got cars. We got money. We got everything but the truth. What's the truth, damn it? I'm afraid, all right? You want to hear me say it? You want to break me down? All right, I'm afraid. For the first time in my life, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, too. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. There is. For me, there is. Again, this this to me is about the machismo. I, yes. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story. I got a story too, but go okay, ahead. I'll tell you a story. It's my, it's 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 short, but it's it's telling. And and guess what? It's about my dad. Um, so it, <laughs> as my, always, my dad my dad uh, never called me by my name. He had a nickname for me, and that nickname was mm. was Mach, and it was short for Macho for Macho Man. So I was born in '74, and this was around the time that the you know that the Village people are singing Macho right. Man. And, macho, Macho Man. Right. And so he, my name is, you know, my name is Matt. Uh, that was too hard for him. So he decided to, um, uh, to just call me Mach. And it was sort of a term of endearment that he came up with. Yeah. But, but the idea, but here's the thing that I'm wrestling with now as a 46-year-old man is like, okay, like, I was, like, my dad was like, every time he addressed me, he was calling me Macho. Like, he, like, like that, that was such a, Almost your a, identity. It was for, almost a, yeah. a mandate, um, you know, that in his eyes I was supposed to be macho, and so and then he would take me to these movies where the machoist man around, which is Rocky Balboa, you know, the Italian stallion, right? Like the 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 hardest thing he could ever do was admit he was afraid. That was the that was the absolute hardest thing he he could possibly do, and and then and then for me where the movie just. I just, I go, fuck you movie is that like after he admits he's afraid, it's all fine. (laughs) 
like, like mm-hmm. I want to see him admit he's afraid. This is where this is where I this is why I will never make a Rocky movie because I would rather him see uh, I would rather see him admit he's afraid and then go into the ring and lose. <laughs> that to me would be a great, <laughs> no, a great so ending. I, I agree with you completely. Like if this movie had ended with him losing and instead of just going three rounds, but went whatever. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or go the distance to 15. If he fought his heart out and lost, this movie, you know, would take on a whole new identity. Well, isn't that the original Rocky movie? Not Like, he yes. he goes the distance, and he, he gets the moral victory. And that's why that movie is amazing. <laughs> well, that's why, I, that's why I hedged. Like, don't go the distance. What if he gets knocked out? But everybody could see the heart. That's why we loved Rocky, was because... He had a, a a level deep within inside him that wouldn't let him quit. But if he had fought his heart out and lost, that could have said more about the man and the character and this series, too. But I do have a note here that says if Stallone, Stallone himself said if he had any courage, Rocky would have died at the end of this movie. Holy shit. Where did you read that? Uh, IMDb trivia, I think. It's funny for him to use the word courage. You know, because we're having yeah. the, the character is somebody who who has to admit he's afraid of something. And I think it's fascinating that Stallone himself sees killing off Rocky as a as an act of creative courage, that mm-hmm. that, that would have been the harder thing to say. And instead, what we have is a, a Rocky 2.0, Rocky Balboa 2.0. Yeah. Built for the 80s, a 70s character built for the 80s where he's it's mm-hmm. lean and mean all of the vagaries of the original movie and all of the moral victory versus actual victory it's all set aside and we are going to go we are going to go all in on male victory well and specifically white male so victory. here's my yeah right and here's my machismo story for you mm. when rocky three came out we went over to the Valencia's house. We would go into he and his brother's room and push their two twin beds together into a corner. And that was the ring? That was the ring. We'd stand on top of the beds. We would staple rope, three <gasps> ropes, into the wall, wrap them around a a, a lamp, like a tall lamp, yep. and then, then staple them into the other wall. We'd put one sock inside of another sock and those were our gloves. We would, we would, we would play the soundtrack to Rocky Three and box each other. This is what we did. Oh my God! I'm gonna ask. Yes. I'm gonna ask. Where were his parents? Don't know. <laughs> I I, I, I knew no the answer before I asked the question. I have no recollection of parents being in the building, in the home. That's very 1982. I remember my younger brother being very excited. I think at the prospect of beating the shit out of me. Because I was never as good an athlete as my my two brothers. Mm. I'm the runt in my family at six foot two. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember that night just sort of. Having the Rocky mentality, and I remember hitting my brother hard. I don't remember if I actually punched him hard enough or actually just pushed him, but I pushed him or punched him out of the ring. He lost his balance, fell into the ropes. The lamp came down, (laughs) crashing on top of him. 
Everybody went ape shit. <laughs> and I felt like the strongest person in the world that night. Eye of the tiger. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eye of the fucking tiger. <laughs> The 1982 Project will be back after these messages. Born of tradition, nurtured by pride, Budweiser Light with a clean, distinctive taste and a light beer worthy of the king of beers. Bring out your best. Bring out your best. The best never comes easy. talk about first blood this feels like a, a late 70s movie made in 82 but not only that but for me what's amazing about this movie is that it starts as a 70s movie and then it transforms and becomes right. and becomes an 80s movie okay for the last act of the movie it is for me this is the movie <laughs> before our eyes right before our <laughs> eyes if i when i watched this i thought i it felt like i was looking at the missing link like, like I had, we'd finally found the bridge between what a '70s movie is and what an '80s movie is. When you when when you say something is particularly '70s, it has sort of a a, a look that is less polished. There's a little bit more gritty right. and grainy. That the stories gritty, grainy, character focused. The, the stories are centered centered around characters and imp- imperfect characters. There's a lot of antiheroes. Yeah. In the in the seventies seventies sure. uh, pictures, especially when you're dealing with with uh, uh, men, and there are the stories contain more vagaries. Whereas in the eighties, I feel like it takes on a more polished look. We talked about how Rocky himself, Rocky Balboa, kind of eighties eighties right. up for Rocky three, um, and shed mm-hmm. shed the uh, shed the pounds. And I think uh, movies generally shed some pounds. They got down to fighting weight in the nineteen eighties, right. and the stories were incredibly lean. There were no more vagaries. It was all very pat. What's amazing to me about this is that while Stallone, on one hand, is commodifying Rocky Balboa and getting him down to fighting weight, he's got this other character that he's working with of John Rambo. And he's not directing this movie, but he's working, he's, he's inventing this character. No, not yet. Not yet, exactly. For me, I can see as the character takes shape, when he enters the third act and he's got the bandana on at last... And he's got the two straps of bullets across his chest at last. And he's got the machine gun in his hand at last. Mm-hmm. It feels like, oh, that's that's the vision of Rambo that we are now still living with. This movie is completely separate from the rest of the franchise. This is, this is the setup for the movie, right? A Green Beret returns from Vietnam. He goes, he's, he's trying to find the, the men that he served with. And he drifts into this small Oregon town and, and where Brian Dennehy, the corrupt, you know, uh, rotund, like... My town. He's, he's, oh, he, is, he, he, he does nothing but indulge himself all day. Uh, he is certainly not there to protect and serve. He sees this drifter and says, all right, drifter, drift along. 
Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. Why are you pushing me? What did you say? So why are you pushing me? I haven't done anything to you. First of all, you don't ask the questions around here. I do. You understand? Secondly, we don't want guys like you in this town. Drifters. First thing you know, we got a whole bunch of guys like you in this town. That's why. Besides, you wouldn't like it here. This is... It's a quiet little town. In fact, you might say it's boring. But that's the way we like it. And I get paid to keep it that way. So my question to you is, when John Rambo decides to cross that bridge, are you on his side? Don't you feel he, do you feel he's justified in saying, I should be able to eat where I yes. want to eat? Yes, he, he is, okay. the, the movie does a, a very, uh, it does a good job at doing a very simple task, which is make your hero the victim of an injustice early on. Right. Yeah. And you do that and we'll, we'll, we'll buy whatever happens after that. And the injustice is he just was looking for a place to eat and the sheriff drove him out of town and says, wander on to the next town. Maybe you can find whatever, whatever the line was. 30 miles away. Yeah, 30 yeah. miles. You should be there by dinner time. Well, this is one of the things I find most fascinating about this movie because Brian Dennehy as Teasel, he is clearly set up to be the villain of this movie. But the things we're dealing with today, in terms of law enforcement, feel like that cop still. Yeah, there's something, um, there is something, again, this I think goes to the 70s of it, where police were often uh, depicted as corrupt or on the take in some way. But that's not this guy. No, he's not on the, he's not on the take, but he, he, I think, comes from a long line of, of, Sheriffs, and I and I think it's important to think of him as a sheriff in the in the sense of yeah. a western, like in in the tradition of westerns, sheriffs are usually these kind of overweight, feckless uh, guys who are just there to keep the peace, not really to enforce laws, but to make sure that the the moneyed interests are not bothered. It's with. that his power is absolute. Yes. You know, the bloodlust that the character of Teasel has, where he's saying things like, you know, I'm going to pin that Congressional Medal of Honor to his liver. Or I wanted to kill him so bad I could taste yeah. it. There's a particular bit of ugliness that that I think we're still reckoning with within law enforcement. And it's that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is nothing... There's nothing redeeming about Teasel. He doesn't come to see the error of his ways. I think in the end, no, right. in the end, you know, he he never he never does what Tommy Lee Jones does, <laughs> which is pause right, to, pa- right. to pause to consider that his first instincts about Richard Gimble were incorrect, you know, or, right. or that or that guilt and innocence matters, you know. Uh, yeah, Teasel never never goes there. He just is sort of well, he's see, just sort of he, defeated. He feels like he he feels like a modern like there's an analogy between him and a modern day Republican. Teasel learns no lessons. He has a knife put to his throat and is left sobbing like a baby. And all that does is make him want to kill him even more. He doubles down. 
Every time, yeah. He doubles down. Yeah. And then the, his town is burning down to the ground, and he's in the same position with his M16 or whatever on top of a roof, quietly praying once again mm-hmm. not to die. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Completely. The police brutality that we witness, the, the glee with which uh, John Rambo is sort of tormented in the jail cell. Um, right. And, you know, where they sort of hose him down and all of that stuff does feel very current. It, 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 it definitely, when you're watching it with 2021 eyes, it, I felt myself sort of activated in a way mm-hmm. that, um, right. that was surprising to me. It was surprisingly modern a take. And again, the first act of this movie is just your main character suffering one injustice after another. Right. To the point where, like, they it's 30 solid minutes of injustice before he delivers the first kind of offensive blow. You know, he, he's generally, he's this whole movie is, like I said, it's like The Fugitive. It's a man on the run. It's a man on it's the a run. It's a man on the run, but and then and then and know, then at the, the midpoint, act, at the midpoint, he, the sort of hunt, hunted becomes the hunter, and then you you finish yeah. that thought out, which is again well, not just that either, because you know the first act, like you said, he's just being served one injustice after another. The second act is the hunter or the hunted becomes the hunter, along with this mythologizing of the character, and of Green Berets themselves. I mean, how much do you know of Green Berets? It all came from this movie. Everything I know about Green Berets comes from this movie. It comes from the, exactly. comes from the lips of Richard, right. Richard Crenna. Every, Come from the lips of Richard Crenna. His character is sort of a classic character yeah. who spends the entire movie talking up the prowess of your main character while he's not in the room. I don't think you understand. I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came here to rescue you from him. I'm just amazed that he allowed any of your posse to live. You're lucky to be breathing. Well, if you send your people in there after him, they'll get killed. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best. With guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain. Ignore weather, to live off the land, to eat things that would make a billy goat puke. In Vietnam, his job was to dispose of enemy personnel, to kill, period. Are you telling me that 200 men against your boy is a no-win situation for us? You send that many, don't forget one thing. What? A good supply of body bags. I was astounded at watching this, I was astounded by how much I was enjoying this movie. I mm-hmm. was ready to be very snobbish and very um, filmy and, you know, cinema-y <laughs> and, uh, and, and sort of look down my nose at this movie. And I was, and I looked, and I, as I was watching it, I was like, this is, this is sort of a, a, a low, a low grade, gritty, bloodier version of the fugitive. This is yeah. um, this is one man yeah. on the run. This is it, it, and I think so much of this movie holds up. The one moment for me that where I think the movie is clearly saying he's a hero now is when that truck goes through the the roadblock with the soaring music. Yes, 
at that point, the mu- the, you know, the movie is saying he's coming to town. He, he's he's, he's going to start righting wrongs. The, the movie is saying we are going to satisfy every promise that Richard Crenna made. Right. That's all that's happening. It's like but, one by one, he's going to do everything Crenna time, said he was going to do. I still find all of that because Stallone was smart enough to put the last scene in where the character breaks down. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that the character goes to jail. Yes. At the end of this movie. The movie. He leaves in handcuffs. The movie snaps back to a 70s movie in the at the very right. end. So I forgive the movie for indulging in the hero kind of worship maybe that it does because of that last scene. And nobody, by the way, wanted that last scene. Stallone had to keep saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. If you had told me that First Blood ends with a heart-wrenching monologue where John Rambo cries in the arms of Colonel Troutman, I would have said, like, no, that's not how it ends. It ends with him kicking ass and taking names. And it's like, yes, he kicks ass and takes names, and then he breaks down. Well, not just that, Matt, but you know how many people die in this movie? You're going to say one? one? Yeah, I was going to say it's not many because everybody – he purposefully doesn't kill all those people in the forest. Right, and And he – you could you could say that that death is an accident. Criminally, he might be held liable, but also that cop was actively trying to murder him. Yeah. So this is the guy on the helicopter. You know, to your point yeah. of what you were just saying, right? If you were to tell some any average moviegoer that John Rambo kills one person in First Blood, and that you might argue it was self-defense, they'd say you're crazy. He kills everybody in sight, right? Right, and that is certainly the reputation that the Rambo franchise went on to kind of right. make real. Well, <laughs> and for good reason. So this is what's interesting to me about First Blood, because the character of Rambo became something we can identify that's a noun that's or or even an adjective going rambo right right that it being a rambo it's become a caricature yeah but that is not present in this movie true and the toxic maleness that we're talking about that that has now re- been re- applied to rambo is not in this movie but is there in teasel yes that he is suffering from that and that's what's interesting and that it and that that worldview and that way of being doesn't win the day in the end. You know, yeah. it is, it is Rocky, I'm saying Rocky again. It is Rambo's, <laughs> it is John Rambo's breakdown in the, in the, in the final minutes of the film. It is his, right. it is his becoming vulnerable that allows himself to be apprehended. He cannot turn himself in until he says what he needs to say to someone who who will listen. And the only person there who's going to listen is Troutman. Right. And that is the, that is the, whether or not he was right in doing what he was doing, whether or not he went too far or, or whatever that, like that. Well, clearly went too far. (laughs) Yes, he went too. Okay. Let me back up. He went too far. He went too far. But that, I, but that speech, I felt like it's, it's a good speech. Like I, when I watched it, I was, I was like, I was like, that's a good fucking speech. And and I well up every time I see it. It's 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 a 
great piece of writing and a really yeah. great, good piece of acting. Exactly. And I thought, damn you, First Blood. Like, how dare yeah. you? How dare you make me feel the feels right now? Because I don't want right. to. I really want <laughs> right. to hate this yeah, movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want. I want. Save it for the sequels. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to. I really save wanna, your menace for the sequels. I want to hate this movie, uh, but I can't. I can't hate it because it, as you were saying, like it. It has all of these turns and these reversals of what we expect the movie to have, and that. Right. Of all the Rambo movies, this is the least Rambo of them all. The first one is the yeah, least exactly. is the least Rambo of them all. And and again, next to you know, sort of put in a lineup, Rocky, Rambo, Paul Kersey, Conan the Barbarian, and Khan. Right. Of those, John Rambo, ironically, is, right. is the most <laughs> human. The one that we can identify with the most. As he is in this yeah, movie, the one that is sort of the most heartbreaking. That that was a hard pill to swallow. I was like, it's like, damn it, this is a different. This is not who I thought. This is not the movie I thought I was sitting down to watch. Right. Not the one I remember when I was a kid. And yes, I saw this in the theaters. And yes, I was seven years old. Um, we, we're 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 going back to this well of yes. My father brought me to these all these movies. I saw things I shouldn't have saw seen. things I shouldn't have seen. <laughs> I don't think he was doing this out of a love for film and wanting to uh, broaden my horizon. Right. We were He was not taking me to see the Bergman film that came out that year. He was taking no, me to right. see um, uh, these these sort of horrific visions of manhood. But but to your point about you, you know what this movie also does do to a young mind because when we saw it, we used to go across the street to David Valencia's house climb the huge pine tree that was in his front yard and just drop mm -hmm. and hope we'd cut our arms. So that you can sew them together. Like, that was what we did. Yeah. That's how stupid we were as young boys. The 1982 Project will be back after these messages. This bug's for everybody who puts in a hard day's work. Yeah, just for you. That distinctively clean, crisp taste that says Budweiser. What are you this Bud's for you. Wrapping this up is First Blood, no salt, grain of salt, or a cup of salt for you. I'm going to say no salt. I... I think yeah. you can watch this movie. I don't think, obviously, it's not a movie for seven-year-olds. Um, we've, we've established that. Um, but I think as an adult, you can sit and watch this movie and enjoy it. Enjoy it for what it is. I agree with you. I, I, I really think that, I think, I think it's a no-salt movie. I really do. I, yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm to officially go on no-salt, that it's, it's enjoyable in that it's, story of an innocent man on the run. And, yeah, you know, for me, those stories are evergreen. I, 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 I can always watch an innocent man or an innocent woman on the run. All right. So can I take it from our previous segment and conversation that you're saying cup of salt still for Rocky three? Yeah. I, my, I believe that Rocky three is cup of salt. And I, I, 
I'll, I, and I didn't say this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll relate this story. When I was watching this, I sat down and brought my uh, brought my 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 uh, son came in, and my son's nine, and so I thought right. I thought, all right, I'm going to watch a Rocky. He's never seen a Rocky movie. So I'm going to put on a Rocky movie. I think that was my exact age when I saw it. There you go. And so in the theater, and so we sit down, and Bill Conti's music comes on, and it's like okay, and Rocky, and it's like all right, I'm feeling the feels. I'm like ready to go, and then and then it goes into uh, Eye of the montage. Tiger. Montage goes in the montage Eye of the Tiger, and and I watch my son, and halfway through the montage, like he he was seeing violence, and it was like repulsing him. He was like, oh. Like he was seeing the clips of the fights and he was like, oh, I can't, I can't watch this. He didn't even make it through the montage. He just left. And I was like, yeah, that's the appropriate response. Like that, that actually is, you walk away from this movie halfway through the opening montage because it is straight up poison. (laughs) I'm I'm great of salt. I'm sorry. I'm great of salt. I am. You have a higher tolerance, I think, than I do. I th- I think it has more to do with there's too much in the movie that I like mm-hmm. that we've spoken to the the fight you know I I like the fight on the beach with his wife I like Mickey telling him I, that he was trying to protect him I think Burgess Meredith is fantastic in that scene yeah. because I grew up loving boxing and because I grew up in sports there the things that really bother you the most I I. I am either forgiving of it or excuse as as this might be what actually happened. Mm. So yeah, forgive me. Grain of salt. I, I completely forgive you. I, I'm, I, I, I don't begrudge <laughs> you your opinion at all. I, I'm not I'm not here to convince you. I, well, and I guess there's a there's a whole second part of it to me because we're two white men. So who the fuck right. who the fuck should listen to us? Right. Yeah, the call but the call's coming be... from inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Part one with Macho Grande. Part two coming up next. Death Wish 2, Conan, and Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan, right? We're going to do all three. We are going to do all three. I think there's. I think we'll be able to, to get all three out because um, essentially they're all the same movie. <laughs> I can't wait. The 1982 project is a production of the Everything's Equal podcast and was produced by Mike Chance and Matt Aldrich. Original music by Emmett Aldrich and Murphy Aldrich. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I pity the fool. <laughs>